Welcome back to another episode of the Housewives. Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the year of polygamy. And I'd like to thank everyone that's made it this far. It's been a fascinating year so far of learning about the principle. Now, I've been running against some sort of podcaster's writer's block. I don't know if there's a name for that, but that's what I'm experiencing. There are so many great stories, and I'm so overwhelmed with the information that I don't always know exactly what I want to talk about. So if you have specific requests, I would love to see those in the comment section. And thank you for everyone who's been leaving comments so far. Today I want to focus on a story of a woman because this particular woman, her story tells us a lot about not only frontier Utah, but a lot about women in the frontier in general. And I really think it gives us some clues into the modern contemporary church and how we view certain practices and where they come from. So this is a really important story. Plus, it's fascinating. We're going to be talking about a feminist Mormon pioneer. And she was a feminist Mormon housewife before it was a thing. And she was Probably, I'm guessing, a woman after the own hearts of many of the women listening today. Her name is Lucinda L. Dalton. Now, I'm going to link some books. You definitely, definitely have to pick up the book, Sister, Saint, Sister Saints, edited by Vicki Burgess Olson. Uh, it's got a whole bunch of essays on fascinating women. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to cover a few of them if I get to it because these stories are fascinating. I'm going to focus in particular to one of my favorite people in the world, Levina Fielding Anderson's essay on Lucinda Dalton. And we're going to talk about the life of Lucinda Dalton here and how plural marriage affected her. Now, I want you to think if you are um, a reader of the Feminist Mormon Housewives blog or you are in our Facebook group, or you consider yourself a feminist Mormon, I want you to think about yourself in this position. Think about holding those feminist ideals and still being a polygamous woman, because that is going to be the story of Lucinda Dalton. Levina Anderson, in her essay, tells us a story of a woman who was so sure of her sense of worth that she believed that the restoration that Joseph Smith brought about was a restoration of all things, including, quote, women's ultimate redemption and compensation for the wrongs of mortality would be part of the purification of the earth itself, end quote. Imagine that. Imagine believing, knowing, looking in the world around you and seeing the inequality and feeling it and knowing it was so tangible and believing that the restoration was God's way of fixing that for making up for the wrongs of mortality and purifying this practice. That is what Lucinda Dalton believed. Now, she is kind of a paradox because she is super, super faithful and she's also critical of her leaders. Who do we know that's like that? She believed with unflinching faith that she had the right to call upon the heavens and have her prayers answered. It, like, it wasn't in question in her mind. She just knew that her worth was so great that if she prayed to God, God would answer her prayers. She didn't need to necessarily 
have to appeal to men, she knew that God loved her enough that her prayers would be answered. She writes this story in her autobiography. Um, it's this tender, also heart-wrenching story of an illness of a much-loved little brother. And I'm going to tell the story because I kind of want to set the scene to this woman's faith, and because I think that's important in helping us understand the rest of the things we're going to talk about. According to Anderson, quote, feeling in all humility that she was entitled to claim the Lord's promise that he would grant the prayers of the righteous, the 16-year-old Lucinda fasted and prayed with intense fervor that the little one's life might be spared. We're talking about her little brother who was sick. Indeed, she seemed to have halted the illness, but he did not improve. He simply lingered, suffering, and she felt like, quote, I had lifted some heavy weight just to the edge of a place of rest, but lacked the one ounce of power necessary to deposit it thereon. Coming at one time suddenly in the room, I saw my mother wring her hands and cry in anguish. Why, oh, why must my innocent baby suffer so much? If it is God's will to take him away, oh, let his cruel sufferings end. Lucinda goes on to say, quote, My heart smote me guiltily. Perhaps, thought I, it is God's will to take him. Perhaps my short-sighted wishes stand between the beloved and his recess. I happened away and with streaming eyes fell upon my knees crying, Thy will, O Lord, not mine be done. As soon as I was calm enough to re-enter the sick room, I did so and was struck to the heart by the change of the precious one's fate. And on that save, same evening, he died, end quote. So we see this story. She feels like her prayer was a selfish one and that she actually prevent her prayers prevented her brother from um, passing in a way that was cruel to him. Now, it seems a little victim blaming to me, but I also think it illustrates that she had perfect faith that God would answer her prayers, even if it was something wrong for her brother. I think that's interesting to note that she really believed that God was answering her prayers and looking out for her specifically. Lucinda would be considered by church records merely the fourth wife of Charles Wakeman Dalton. That's how we know her. Charles Wakeman Dalton is an interesting character, and he's one that really fits into this series because he has a life that is going to tell us something about polygamy that, that maybe none of us know much about. And we're, we're going to be talking about posthumous divorces or canceling of ceilings after someone is dead. We've talked about other polygamous men and how their wives had left them. But what about wives that would leave their husbands after they died? This is the story of Lucinda. We know she has from birth this deep sense of justice and this love for God. She, she says she would get a love of education from her beloved father, who, who is very influential in her life. I'm going to read a poem that Lucinda writes. It's a very powerful poem. And I think that it illustrates a lot about her. Now pay attention to these words. This poem goes like this. Woman is the first to know sorrow and pain. Last to be paid for her labor. First in self-sacrifice. Last to obtain justice or even a favor. First to greet lovingly man at his birth. Last to forsake him when dying. First to make sunshine around his hearth. Last to lose heart and cease trying. 
last at the cross of her crucified Lord, first to behold him when risen, first to proclaim him to life restored, bursting from death's gloomy prison, first to seek knowledge, the godlike prize, last to gain credit for knowing, first to call children a gift from the skies, last to enjoy their bestowing, first to fall under the censure of God, last to receive a full pardon, first to kiss meekly the chastening rod, thrust from her beautiful garden, first to be sold for the wages of sin, last to be sought and forgiven, first in the scorn of her dear brother man, last in the kingdom of heaven. So a day cometh, glorious day, early perfection restoring, sin and its burden shall be swept away, and love flow like rivers outpouring. Then woman, who loves in through sorrow and shame, the crown of a queen will be wearing, and love freed from lust, a divinely pure flame, shall save our sad earth from despairing. The latter-day work is already begun, the good from the evil to sever. The word has gone forth, and when all is done, the last shall be first forever. End quote. And this brilliant poem is called Woman. You can see that she really believes that Joseph Smith was restoring uh, she says, women who are, are always last will become first. It's a really brilliant poem if you, if you look at the lyrics and how she's done this. She would marry Charles Wakeman Dalton. She would be his fourth wife. And she would later be granted a separation from him. But it wasn't always that way. She, marriage was not her goal. As you can see from the poem, she's a feminist at heart. She's noticing the inequities of woman. She would once call marriage a terrible thing. She said that her instinct to marry Charles was, quote, the greatest spiritual manifestation ever vouched to me. I have seen in the married state so much that was disagreeable and humiliating to woman that I was firmly resolved to remain single, end quote. So she, we know that when she was proposed to, she really wasn't happy about it. However, she expressed concern that her faith sort of butted up against her desire. She would say, quote, in the highest glory of heaven, none are single. Now, that's important. In the highest glory of heaven, none are single. This is still permeates Mormon doctrine now that part of the plan is marriage. And she knew that she kind of wanted to not get married, but she couldn't reconcile this with her faith position, which she firmly believed in. She actually contemplated the idea of, quote, being handmaiden to some sanctified woman. She actually thought, I detest marriage so much, I will be a handmaiden to someone else, which was a fate she and many others at the time felt were reserved for the righteous, but the unwed. Since she, quote, had been told in express terms by some blind leaders of the blind that the kingdom here and hereafter belonged only to men and that woman enjoyed its gifts and blessings only in sufficient degree to make her man's efficient servant. And that looked to me like nothing worth striving for, end quote. And I love reading her writings because it's so much like reading the blogs today. This woman has passion and fire and she also has faith. She described the thought of plural marriage as, quote, worse than gall and wormwood to me, for in my pride and heart I had determined to win my soul's salvation alone, forgetting that the best and bravest of us are only too happy to be acknowledged co-workers with Christ, end quote. So when she meets Charles, she was 20, and he is 19 years older than she is. She's actually He's actually only two years younger than her father, and I think Lucinda's like a a year older than his daughter. 
Charles would have three wives already. When he first proposed, she said, quote, I resented the thought and told him that that the man who thought I should be meek, obedient, unobtrusive servant was very sadly wrong, end quote. He explained to her that Christ had served all of mankind and become a servant and said that marriage was similar to Christ's ministry. Now, it's interesting because here we have this bright feminist. She's 20 years old. She already knows she doesn't want to get married. She's made this firm resolution, and he appeals not to necessarily logic, but more to a practical sort of spiritual um, logic that really that really worked. He says, listen, you don't want to be a servant to me and you see marriage as a servant, but guess what? Christ was a servant to everybody. And that's the way to do it is to be a servant. And then Lucinda was in this terrible fix because she was like, oh, you're right. Now, this is one of the important things I'm, I'm asking everyone to think about. It's interesting that throughout all history, the idea of being a servant can be glorified. We see that with Christ, right? Now, what is missing, I think, from this story is the component of power. Christ, of course, was a servant to the people that he served, but he wasn't serving people necessarily that always had authority over him. And this is a way that we can really like take a narrative that appeals to people, a good narrative, and maybe twist it to oppress people. Um, so Lucinda, of course, is struck by this. You know, it's, it makes her feel maybe prideful. She feels like she needs to be humble. She says, quote, this was new light on a difficult problem. This was speaking from reason and common sense instead of vaguely hinting at some foggy superstition about man's being created first and consequently best, noblest and supremest. These were arguments at once indisputable and satisfactory, end quote. So her heart becomes persuaded by this argument. And as Levina Fielding Anderson points out in her essay, Lucinda was also really afraid. She mentions that she believed that the blessings of matrimony far underweighed the trials that she had seen many much wiser women experience. She had seen women suffer and she was afraid. She was afraid to get married. She decided to pray and she writes down her answer. I'm going to read her own words, and you can also find this in Sister Saints. She says, In very despair and in deep humiliation, because I was impressed so to do, I called on him to pray with me on the subject. I knew he was startled by the demand and felt like assuming a great responsibility, but he hesitated only long enough to learn that there was no shadow of trifling in me. He knelt down first, and I placed myself beside him and laid one of my hands on one of his. And as I did so, I felt a thrill through every fiber of my being, and I know he felt the same. I was utterly crushed under the knowledge that within a few minutes, a question which would be settled, which would shape and determine my destiny forever. And cowardly, I dreaded to meet the decision. The prayer was short, simple, and unassuming, but direct earnest and sincere. And at every word uttered, a huge stone of my mountain load of doubt and fear rolled from my heart. My stony pride and bitter humility were alike softened. A peace sweeter than joy took possession of my soul. I felt that we were in the presence of the hosts of heaven, and a direct incontrovertible testimony was given me that it was the will of God and not my will that I should accept this man for my yoke fellow. He knew as well as I what the decision was, and in an awestruck, solemn silence, we left the spot. 
To this day, it is to both of us the most precious and solemn recollection, and it is never mentioned between us except with deepest reverence. And that's also in her autobiography, pages 19 and 20. I think that this is important. Here she's saying that this is something that was meaningful to her. And like other many other women who would struggle with this concept, she really had this spiritual manifestation. Now, I spoke earlier about the sort of narrative of convincing oppressed people. Like we see this in the caste system in, say, India, where we, we convince lower caste that there it is a glorious thing to be a servant, right? Which fine, except for it benefits the people in power. In this particular case, I don't mean that to indict Charles, her husband, because by all accounts, it seems that he really was a loving father and a good husband, and he saw himself as also a servant of Christ, not as someone who was looking for more servants. So I think that's important to note because, again, one of the things that we, the modern listener, have to reconcile is maybe polygamy isn't all about the less of men. Maybe it was hard on men, too. What does that mean? What does that say? And surely it was a spiritual trial that some people found some sort of sanctity in. I mean, this was sort of a refiner's fire for a lot of people, which is also can be a tool of oppression, but it also can be a very big spiritual value. So she has this, you know, this spiritual experience that really influences her. And she marries Charles on October 3rd, 1868 in the endowment house. We know that Lucinda becomes a teacher. She is beloved by her pupils and very well respected in the community. And she would teach for many, many years. She would live in Beaver, Utah, and she sang in the choir, and she was also a mother. And if you read the book Sister Saints, there are these great stories that she talks about being a mother and she, you know, dealing with the death of her children and things like that. Something changes, though, early on in her marriage and in Lucinda's life. As I mentioned earlier, Lucinda adores her father. She loves her mother. She seems to really admire them. And we know that her own mother becomes heartbroken over the principal. So Lucinda is married in 1868. Just two later, two years later, her father takes on a plural wife and it's said to tear the family apart. We know that at this time, her 16-year-old sister, Emma, leaves home and moves in with Lucinda. Now, we also know that this caused great distress for Lucinda's mother and I'm sure it just, you know, affected a lot of the internal family dynamics. Interesting thing happens. Emma moves into the home. She's 16 years old and we do know Strangely enough, from home teachers, they're actually having home teachers now at this point. Home teacher records indicate that Charles, Lucinda's husband, and her father had some quarrel between them. And it was such a quarrel that they had to invite the home teachers over to fix it. And whatever the matter was, it wasn't settled. Levina Anderson says in her essay that this might, the quarrel might be because young Emma, who came to live with them, soon married Charles, perhaps without her father's permission. So he might have been upset that Charles, a very, very much older man, takes on a very much younger, younger wife. Emma does not do well in the marriage. She seems not to be fit for the principal and is not into the whole domestic thing. So that's a theme running through uh, the girls in Lucinda's family, apparently. She, she tries to last four years, doesn't have any children, 
till she finally sends a letter to Brigham Young that says this, okay? This is what Emma says to Brigham Young. Sir, I was married to Charles Wakeman Dalton in the House of Endowments on the 9th day of October, 1871. For reasons which President Murdoch has kindly informed me, you do not require me to state, I now desire a divorce. By giving this matter your earliest convenience, you will confer an eternal obligation. Yours respectfully, E. Lee Dalton. Now, um, I love that because it tells us something. It says that she can ask for a divorce, and according to her stake president, she doesn't have to tell the reason, and he has to grant it. We also know that we don't have any records if it was granted or not, but we do know that Emma abandons Charles and Lucinda, and she ends up working for the Rio Grande and Denver Railroad in Arkansas, and was said to say that the church was, that Mormonism was, quote, full of iniquity and its followers hypocrites, end quote. So during these four years, we know it's a rough time for Lucinda. She's dealing with a follow in her own with her own parents and dealing with whatever's happening with her own husband. Now, if you've heard her writing and you're like, wow, she's a really good writer. She's really articulate. There's a reason for that. It was during these really rough years that Lucinda starts writing for the women's exponent, a paper devoted to feminist and feminine topics. This magazine was first edited by Louisa Lula Green Richards, and circulation never rose above a thousand, but it was pretty popular at the time. Um, I, I consider this like to be on par with the feminist blogs out there, um, had a wide readership and, you know, was an important voice in Mormon women's movement. Lucinda's work first appears in print on November 1st, 1872. Five months after the paper was established, Lucinda would be unapologetically feminist. Her article in 1873 advocated for women's exercise, including swimming, shooting, skating, and ball. She pushed back on what she called, quote, foolish and groundless customs as a deep prejudice against whistling. So apparently it wasn't acceptable for women to whistle at the time. And she even would draw sarcastic little comics of women, one laced up in corsets with smelling bottle at nose, given the plaintiff's screams if she should spy a mouse, end quote. She was also deeply attached to the concept of prayer, and she wrote a lot about it. She also begins to write hotly about male supremacy, and we see inklings of the struggle in her own personal and private marriage. She often talks about husbands. She uses these pseudonyms and these sort of like fictional stories where we can see struggles of women, and she pushes back on this idea of marriage. I'm going to read, I'm going to read a paragraph of that for you to get an idea of her brilliant writing. She issues her own manifesto. It says, quote, If in order to be womanly and keep my sphere, I must do the former, then let spheres take care of themselves, for I've no use for them. I do not feel like giving proof of woman's inf- inferiority by any such complaint course. Every person within whose soul the least spark of reason exists has a right to cultivate that reason and give it satisfaction before adopting any principle of opinion. And because my head may be weaker than yours and my judgment less reliable is no reason I should not cultivate and improve them. And when you give me your views on any given subject and withhold the support of these views, you defraud me of my opportunity to cultivate my judgment and arrive at a just conclusion for myself, end quote. And this is called Assertion is Not Proof in the Women's Exponent, issue two on September 1st, 1873. And I love that because she was fighting back against this argument that women, you know, were too weak minded and they couldn't handle you know, education or school. And she was saying, really, if that's the case, 
then you're defrauding me by saying my mind is too weak and you're not going to try to strengthen it, then that's your problem. And I love it. Such great writing. She would continue to write. Um, she she would write for the exponent for two years in this period. She she was a heavy supporter of the women's rights movement. She blasted politics that she felt disenfranchised Utah, including local politics. She absolutely agitated for rights. She would compare the inequality of Gentile women with Mormon women and argued for the advantages of Relief Society because, of course, at this time, Relief Society was a really autonomous, empowering thing and even wrote a feminist anthem song called Woman Arise. So she is really letting her angst play out through the pen. After her sister Emma leaves the family, Lucinda would have two more children and move to St. George. In April, On April 1st, 1878, she would publish a power piece called Questionings, lamenting the bitter lot of women, where the end of one stanza says, quote, for others, we are only taught to live, end quote. So you can see that she is really resenting this sort of inequality that she sees around her. She says, quote, but worse is that our brother creatures say the gentle master has sent to bid us come no nearer to his throne. Men say that they may petition the master directly for the bread of life. Women can only receive it from men. Men may love and serve the Savior directly. Women must love and serve and follow me. The master rewards men with honors, kingdoms, crowns, and lives divine while we may have not. Our very lives be theirs and even you they tell me are not mine, end quote. This sounds so similar to the issues we're talking about now. So yes, Mormon women have been talking about these issues for over a hundred years. Mormon women have been concerned about these issues for a long, long, long time. Now here's the interesting part where plural marriage plays another big effect on her life. We know that her husband Charles would die on July 18th, 1883 in Beaver. And even though there are many harsh writings intimating an unhappy marriage, his death would bring about a few tender poems about him, these sort of yearnings for the dead and things like that. But here's the strange thing. Even though Emma divorced him in life, Lucinda would wait and request a divorce in death. We don't know exactly why, but we do have a few things. We do know that on August 24th, 1884, so just just over a year after he dies, she would write to David Henry Cannon, who's the president of the St. George Temple and the St. George Stake. And consequently, his uncle John Taylor was the president of the church of the time. Here's her letter to the stake president. It says, quote, it is with reluctance, almost amounting to shame, that I come to you this time for counsel because it is on the subject of marriage and my husband has been scarcely gone 13 months. I was always true to him in thought, word, and deed during his lifetime, and I laid his body in the grave, dreaming not else than that I should be his only in time and in eternity. Though I knew he had many imperfections, but now the brethren say he was unworthy, though I know not who appointed them to judge him, they urge me that I stand in a very insecure position and that for my children's sake, as well as my own, I ought to marry again, end quote. Now, we can take some things from this letter. Apparently, one of the men that she was claiming that was judging her husband, saying he was unworthy, was a polygamous man that wanted her as an additional wife and beaver. So we know that there's a bias there. We also know that her interpretation and many interpretations at the time, which still lingers in the circles today, is that she was concerned that if Charles, her husband, was indeed wicked or not worthy, that she would lose her children for all eternity. She was really worried about about it. So she feels this conflict. She doesn't want to write to the 
stick president about this. She's embarrassed. She said she feels shame for it. But the brethren, her local leaders, are telling her she's going to lose her children because her husband is unrighteous. She would write, Here is the thought that appalls me. My feelings as a mother are far keener and deeper than the feelings as a wife. I am the mother of six children, four still living and two gone before, and I would not forfeit my claim to them as their mother for the sake of the best man in God's kingdom. And whatever these four may do, I know that two to be spotless in the sight of God and that they will act under his own perfect counsel. Therefore, if I could but know what course they will take, it would decide my own. If they would choose to wait for their father to retrieve mistakes and come up to their own standpoint, then all by all means, so would I. But if the thought best to press on towards perfection, waiting for none, I should be anxious to do the same, though it looks to me like a selfish decision. But since I cannot know this now, I felt too weak and ignorant to decide so great a matter for myself and so many others alone. Then she says to President Cannon, God come to you, knowing you to be a sincere friend to my deceased husband, as well as to myself, and because there is not in Beaver anyone to whom I can go with the same confidence, that I would get disinterested, impartial, unprejudiced advice. As I said before, I feel almost ashamed of even asking counsel on this matter so soon, but I am pressed for a decision, and I dare not rely on my own unaided judgment. Dear Brother Canon, pray for me fervently. Pray in the temple, where your prayers will surely be heard. And if need be, take counsel for me, and then write it to me and advise me what course to take. God knows I would not wrong the dead. I only wish to know what is right. I do not even desire to be married, for I naturally prefer a single life. But I do fervently desire to serve the Lord with all my might, mind, and strength. And I'm willing to do that. That can be required of me in righteousness. And I know that God will not require more than this. And to Him I commend myself and all that are dear to me. Amen. We know that President Cannon writes back giving her what she calls hard counsel. But... We also know that basically, basically the stake president says you need to write the president of the church. This is above my pay grade. She doesn't want to do it. She's embarrassed. She feels ashamed. But she writes an agitated letter to President Taylor. And of all her writing, Levina says this is the most agitated. She misspells two words. She crosses out a bunch of things. Her handwriting is shaking. President Taylor writes back saying, quote, From all that I can learn concerning his life in addition to what you have written to me, I consider your future unsafe in his hands. And then he gives her permission to dissolve the marriage if she chooses. He doesn't tell her to dissolve it. He leaves it up to her. So with a heavy heart, she annuls this marriage of her husband of 19 years posthumously. Now, I think this is important, this idea that they really believed that this worthy man would be unsafe for his kids. Of course, we've gotten this, you know, transition back and forth. I personally grew up in a Mormon home believing that the children would be sealed to the father. But I know other people that also grew up believing that the children would go with the mother. So it's a really interesting thing that this is kind of being played out. And this obviously caused her enough anxiety that she would divorce him after he died, even though it was very difficult for her to do. Both President Taylor and Lucinda make reference to some of Charles's deeds, which make him unworthy of heaven. Now, it's important to note that Charles was part of the Iron County Mission. Anyone that knows anything about the Iron County Mission might have a an event pop up in their head 
the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Juanita Brooks lists Charles among the men involved in, quote, the blackest deed of Utah history, the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Now, I've been researching this, and Charles's family history has some different different theories for why this happened, why he divorced, why some women divorced him. Family traditions holds that he became a great drinker for liking the, quote, grape too much. And he became more indifferent to his family. Now, certainly if he had participated in the massacre, you could see why he might take up drinking. Because at the time of the massacre, even if you weren't a leader, these leaders, these church leaders in in southern Utah asked regular old men, farmers, ranchers, just regular guys under their authority of the priesthood and basically made them do this. They coerced them into doing this. One family tradition quote says, one of his wives, Lucinda Lee Dalton, tells us in her autobiography that she thinks some of the Dalton men were involved in this terrible Mormon tragedy. We know this not to be true. Charles Wakeman Dalton was somewhere in the north hauling freight when this event took place. Although all the Dalton men in southern Utah probably knew all the details that nobody else did. They kept their mouth shut, end quote. The, this is important because this would be the narrative, right, that we deny, deny, deny. Nobody, nobody wanted to be associated with this. And in fact, in southern Utah, Cedar City becomes empty, right? People like scatter, they move. Nobody wants to be um, involved in this. And of course, all the men at the time take a blood oath and are sworn to secrecy. But it's interesting that after Dalton dies, all of these crimes or whatever his supposed bad deeds were come to light. From the book, The Mountain Meadows Massacre by Juanita Brooks, she says, quote, not only did George A. Smith carry significant orders both to the military and the Indians, but his preaching to the gospel in general was such of an inflammatory nature that it roused them to be in a high emotional pitch. Because of this, the fatal relationship between the visit and the massacre, which followed scarcely a month later, can hardly be overemphasized. George A. Smith stayed with his family in Parowan until Saturday, August 15, 1857, when he started in company with William H. Dame, Colonel Commanding, Captain C. Pendleton, Jesse N. Smith, Elias Silas Smith, Charles W. Dalton, who is Lucinda's husband, Clef Jr., and others to visit the settlements in the South and complete the military organization in each. The events of September 6th to the 11th at the massacre are shrouded in secrecy and conflicting testimony, and then she goes on to name him again. So it's very likely that after his death, these these details come out. People begin to talk and people in Beaver say, listen, you can't be married to this guy. He is not going to make it to the Celestial Kingdom. Charles would only have Julia, Julietta, his first wife, remain willing to stay sealed to him. His third wife, Sarah Jane Lee, who is interestingly the daughter of John D. Lee, also would divorce Charles while he was alive, along with Lucinda's sister Emma. Elizabeth Allred, who was his second wife, canceled her sealing after his death, as well as Lucinda. And Sarah Jane Lee, who was a daughter of John D. Lee, was said to be in love with another man when she married Charles. And after his divorce, which I guess had a trial, they called it a trial, named the bishop there um, to testify, she eventually remained and became remarried and became a hostess for a hotel. So this is also important because this shows the fluidity of both Mormon relationships and frontier life. Partners in the frontier would die much younger. And so in your lifetime, you would not just most likely be with one partner. You would probably have multiple partners in your life. And if it weren't enough to lose people, you have this really fluid system of polygamy where you would marry someone, be a sexual partner for them, 
divorce them, marry someone else, possibly live with them for a few years, get married, and then live with someone else. So even though Mormonism is really sexually like rigid right now, comparing it to the frontier time, which was even Victorian in nature, it was still a lot more fluid in a lot of ways that, that contemporary Mormonism just doesn't see. We know that um, after after she gets her sailing canceled, she likely moves to Manti and she starts to pick up writing again and write some more fiery feminist sermons for the exponent. We don't know what happened to her potential suitor in Beaver, but we do know that Lucinda died a wife in Charles's name. So she keeps her name as she dies. She's buried in Manti. He's buried in Beaver. But I just wanted to tell you this little small anecdote of her life encourage you to do some more reading about her. There's fascinating things and fascinating stories about the wives of Charles married, the other women that Charles married. And of course, he was very much connected to John D. Lee. So there's all of that weird, interesting history going on there. But I think if you listen to this, if you read the book, Sister Saints, and you see the theology kind of woven in here, you can see the concerns of a feminist woman. You can see the sort of dissonance she's feeling, this tension between her faith and what she's seeing lived in real time, her expectations of God being played out through very flawed men. I think many of us, many of us can really relate to this and understand it. And also there's these weird theological underpinnings that we still carry the remnants of in Mormonism today. And that's something I would like everyone to think of when they're listening to the series is listen to these weird, you know, sort of interesting theological ideas and see the particles and the dust of those that still remains today, because that is how I think polygamy completely colors and changes Brighamite Mormonism and sets us aside from all of the other sects. So anyway, thank you so much for listening. If you feel inclined, uh, please leave a donation to keep this project going on feministmormonhousewivespodcast.org and we will see you next week. <laughs>